Today's guest on the Kirin Yoga Podcast is Daniel Simpson. Daniel is the author of the hugely popular The Truth of Yoga, a new book recently released, a fantastic book, unique in providing a mix of a kind of scholarly and practical approach, meaning that it really can be read by all levels of yoga student. Once you want to learn a little bit more about the, the history of yoga or want to delve deeper, it really is a mixed level book, which is, you know, really unusual in, in, in this day and age. I highly recommend the text. So if you want to know where the yogas fits in with the Upanishads or the Vedas, fit in with the Bhagavad Gita, this is the book and this is the podcast for you, this episode. Daniel looks at all these problems over the ages, uh, iterations of yoga regarding tantric, ascetic and now medical approaches, and how modern teachers have been instrumental in the yoga's current trajectory as we, as we know today. Uh, the book covers it and we kind of cover the book in the podcast. Daniel earned a master's degree from the highly esteemed SOAS in London after working for many years as a news correspondent for the likes of Reuters and the New York Times. He's also a long-term yoga practitioner himself, particularly, I believe, in the School of Iyengar Yoga, in which he chronicles um, on his website uh, funny experiences uh, at the Iyengar Institute. You should read that. Uh, DanielSimpson.info is the name of his website. And he also teaches on teacher trainings. You can find him on many teacher trainings worldwide, as well as at Tri Yoga. He teaches courses, etc., at Tri Yoga in London. Uh, renowned for kind of humour, British humour, we bond in that, a pragmatism and an expertise. I really like Daniel, and uh, I've known him for many years as a fellow Englishman and yoga practitioner. So I was excited to get the opportunity to talk to him today in greater depth and probe on my, on my own questions of blind spots, which I really did. So if you haven't got the book, get the book. It's really a great book. And as always, let me know what you think about this, the podcast. <laughs> Don't forget to review us on iTunes. Donate if you fancy. And look at our uh, current and uh, new project, which is the YouTube site of interviews as well, of which you can find this one and many others. All right. Welcome, Daniel, now to the Kenya Yoga Podcast. Great to see you. So today's guest on Kenya Yoga is uh, Daniel Simpson. Daniel Simpson uh, has been a friend and uh, an incredible inspiration on the on the yoga scene for a number of years now. Um, and he's recently written a book which I'm really enjoying currently. Um, and unfortunately, I've also just literally forgotten the title of the so Daniel. Yeah. It's not a it's not a plug for your book, but hold <laughs> up and show us the title. Okay, right there we go. The truth of yoga. That was actually genuine. I had actually literally forgotten that. I kept thinking of another book of yoga. What's it? Like? Is this yoga by Anya Fox? Ah, another kind of, yeah. yeah, another another great book. But but Daniel's in fact is really really there's a real place in the market for this because it's really simple. It really gives a good overview and it, it gives it in such terms that anyone, even a dullard like me, can understand. So really get get behind it, get a copy of it. I really fully put my weight behind this. And today we're going to just basically talk about some of the stuff, i.e. yoga and uh, what we'll call the Sanatana Dharma, let's say, or Hinduism or Indian thinking that uh, Daniel tries to make some sense of because it's all this big, I mean, my leading question, Daniel, is like, just to try and make a start of head or tail out of this, like when we're talking of Indian thought or South Asian studies or the Hinduism is almost pejoratively known now. Um, and that will be another question. Why don't we call it Hinduism? Uh, and what is this, this, what is this thing we're talking about that's maybe more politically correct now called the Sanatana Dharma? What holds it together as a, you know, what holds a number of texts together as a thing? You know, what have they got? Is there anything we can say? They've all got this in common, right? They all, they talk about this and this is their fundamental approach. Well, I think that word you use, dharma, is the glue. Um, you know, you find that also more broadly. The Buddha talked about his teachings as the dharma. Um, it's a general concept for a body of knowledge that explains, you know, how to live in harmony with the way things are. And uh, mm. you know, I think all, all aspects of Hinduism in their different ways are trying to, to make sense of, you know, our relationship to reality. <laughs> and uh, noting, um, you know, quite often from uh, about two and a half thousand years ago onwards, um, the problems we have with our relationship with reality. Before that, some of the older texts were much more just sort of, um, I guess, uh, 
mystical in some ways, but also you know more functional. We were talking about a ritual, asking the gods to intervene on our behalf. And uh, after that sort of fades into the background and philosophy comes into the picture, the question is, you know, what do we do? <laughs> How do we uh, have this sort of mediation process through the mind and the body? Um, and the big question that arises you know, is why do we suffer? Why, why do we experience, you know, basically heartache? <laughs> and what can we do about it? Um, and of course, those questions are asked in lots of other contexts. Exactly. But in an Indian why, context, why doesn't it make it? Why can't we call a, a Christian text a part of the Sanatana Dharma? <laughs> or, or, or indeed, why can't we call Buddhism a part of it? Why is it? Why does it fall under the well, heading of a, a non-orthodox text? Well, maybe we'll come back to that in a bit. But you well, know, well, here, we, well, here we get into yeah, the complexity. Yeah, okay. This phrase, yeah. Sanatana Dharma, Sanatana just means eternal. Um, and uh, the Buddha, in fact, in the Dhammapada, he uses the same phrase, uh, talking about the eternal teachings, effectively. Um, so it's not even in itself a phrase exclusively associated with Hinduism. Has only really been used as a sort of broad umbrella term um, in the last hundred years or so. Um, but is found in many old texts. It's found in the Mahabharata, uh, where it's um, yeah, a description really of um, the highest ideals of virtue. Um, so to, to, to sort of live in, in in harmony with all beings, to prioritize love for all beings, to prioritize not harming, those are the sort of qualities that are described as the sanatana dharma. They, they, they apply to everybody in all circumstances, not specific to your caste or your stage of life, basically, mm. which are the other ideas mm -hmm. that tend to creep into the question of dharma. Mm. Where was I mean, where was this first? I mean, what, what's the position of the the Vedas in in this? Then I mean, uh, how do they set the scene, as it were? And are they re and you know? And the second question: Are they readable? Because no one really seems to read the Vedas, right? I mean, uh, you know, I know there's I, uh, kind of the basic span of my my information on this. Therefore, Veda, the Rig Veda is the oldest, um, and kind of talk about ritual in a very kind of opaque way, a bit. Is that, is that reasonable or can we kind of read them, you know, and get some um, get stuff out I mean, out they're not stories in the way that, the, you know, the Mahabharata is a, an, an epic story. It's very long um, and, you know, some of it's a bit obscure, but there's a narrative and there's characters and there are themes. Um, the Vedas, you know, the original context is, as you described, I mean, they're, they're the soundtrack effectively to early Indian religion. They're literally the words that are recited by priests. So the Rig Veda is largely, you know, hymns in praise of deities um, and by, you know, sort of bigging them up and saying how wonderful they are, um, blowing smoke up their backsides in the hope that they'll give us benefits in return. So it's, you know, please make the weather you know, auspicious so that we can have good harvests so that we all thrive. Uh, please give us favor and fortune in battle. Uh, please give us offspring. That sort of thing is being requested. So it's a relationship with the forces of the, you know, the great unknowable, <laughs> that which we can't control, um, in an attempt to bring it under some control. And so I suppose what happens in the later part of the textual collections that are broadly known as the Vedas, um, the last part of those being the Upanishads, there starts to be more of a philosophical inquiry into you know, how can we have some sort of influence over natural forces within ourselves. And the practice of yoga is one attempt to you know, engage with the world on that level. That the microcosm of the mind and the body and its relationship with the macrocosm of you know, everything, <laughs> how, how can we bring that into some sort of balance? So, so the, you know, the Vedic texts include the Upanishads, but then they span over you know, a thousand years of history plus. <laughs> so um, it's a very broad label. Veda just means knowledge in Sanskrit. So it's but they the were four. knowledge. When, they, when they're four, though, well, it's hard to, hard to say with written because <laughs> they were, they, they right. were spoken or they were recited. So right. priests learned the mantras um, by rote um, and they are very precisely encoded in terms of how you pronounce them so that it's possible to, to, to you know, learn by heart. And they were handed down orally for you know, many, many generations before they were actually set in writing. In fact, it was said you shouldn't put the Vedas into writing. Only certain people were allowed to speak them you know, and certain people were allowed to hear them. Um, and so they were handed down that way. Um, perhaps it's only a thousand years ago that the first uh, manuscript collection of this, this knowledge was compiled, but um, it was preserved very faithfully due to the precision of the way it was recited. So there's the Rig Veda, um, the uh, Yajur Veda, the Sama Veda, and the Atarva Veda, the four sort of strands of this, this knowledge. But each of those are also subdivided into, into strata 
So the earliest layer of this is what's called the Samhitas, the collections of the mantras. Um, and then there are sections called the Brahmanas uh, relating to the Brahmins, the priests, basically an analysis of what the ritual is, why we do it, what it all means. Um, and then out of that grow Aranyakas and Upanishads, which are basically starting to become more philosophical. Firstly, analyzing the ritual in a more in abstract, trying to make sense of it, and then ultimately just you know, leaving the ritual behind, saying the ritual actually doesn't have the answer to the biggest question of life, which is why do we suffer? <laughs> the ritual is all concerned with, you know, we do something and we expect a result. Um, we ask the gods for favors, we want rewards. Um, yeah. Whereas yoga is the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Yoga is yoga's analyzing the problem of wanting. Yoga is analyzing the problem of doing and instead trying to unwind the problematic consequences that come from impure investment in you know, action, basically. The problem of so Before we get onto yoga, I'm just going to just clarify just to get into my dumb head here about what, where, where is the position of the Upanishads and the Vedas? Because I thought that the Vedas, the, the four Veda were, were authored or, or heard, revealed at an earlier date. And then the Upanishads were a kind of critique or a kind of a spiritual or philosophical kind of uh, qualification of the original themes of these Veda that came, you know, over then over centuries, you know, as the multitude of Upanishads were, were authored uh, over, you know, latterly kind of like, you know, quite a while later. Well, the, the, they all fall under the class of uh, what's called Shruti, that which is heard, as you say. So they're revelation. So the, 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 the Samhitas, the hymns, uh, the Brahmanas, the Aranyakas and the Upanishads, all categories of Vedic knowledge fall under that, you know, broad spectrum of <laughs> this has not been authored by humans. It's been revealed by some divine source however you know the texts themselves describe who composed the poems there were rishis the, the seers who channeled this knowledge um, so it's a bit of a you know <laughs> hybrid of the two things and over time what does happen is as you say you know there's a speculation and inquiry um, an analysis of, of what it means to be alive and the Upanishads are engaged in that in a way that is completely different <laughs> to the early Vedic ritual in a way they're almost as you say critiquing it saying it doesn't have the solution to the problems besetting humans. Um, but over time, the incredible inventiveness of the priestly tradition in India is to be able to fold any sort of challenge back into itself. <laughs> so the Upanishads are still very much part of the Vedic collections, even though they're questioning whether the Vedic ritual works. You know, broadly speaking, Vedanta philosophy splits them into two camps. There's the Karmakanda, is what it's called, the, the Vedic ritual passages. Um, and then there's the, 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 the part of the, the Vedic knowledge that's all about you know, insight, the Jnanakanda. Um, which is basically the Upanishads. Um, but they're still seen as you know, part of the same totality. And Hinduism has this wonderful ability to say, whenever we see distinction, whenever things look different, <laughs> basically they're just different manifestations of the same you know, ultimate oneness expressing itself in multiple forms. <laughs> so they can always collapse it back into it. <laughs> I mean, are these different Veda? How the, the, you mentioned four strands. Do they set forth some different kind of lineages or schools at that point, or well, they have um, family lineages because you know not everybody could learn the entirety of the Vedas to recite it. I mean, maybe somebody has, I don't know, but uh, it would be, be an enormous task. So instead, um, some families specialised in some aspects of Vedic knowledge and passed down that. Portion. So the Rig Veda um, has its particular sort of uh, lineages associated with it, similar to the other Vedic collections. And different Upanishads are sort of bolted on to each of those lineages. So some occur in the collection of the Rig Veda, oh others in you know, the Ayurveda. So a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what we, we know we is a lot, this. Well, a lot of what we know about yoga comes uh, from one particular strand. Um, okay, it's getting of, easier, right? Yeah. A lot of it's coming out of the the, uh, particularly from the Krishnamacharya lineages, it's coming out of the Ajurveda. Um, okay, this is so, what we're looking for. You know, <laughs> that's where you're getting into <laughs> the Upanishads that start talking right. about yoga. It's also talking about you know some of, some of, some of the mantras that are associated with yoga practice today. So there is a sort of continuity of knowledge there that's, that's being you know, kind of, I guess, expanded and added to over time. But um, there is there there is there is a sort of you know. A, a, a vague trail that goes back to the Vedas, but most of what we think of as yoga has developed more recently than that. The Vedas are really just talking a different language. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely we'll definitely try and get to that latterly. Um, <laughs> but before we, before we kind of extricate ourselves from the tangle of the Veda, I mean, um, 
What what Upanishads would you kind of recommend for people? I mean, because they they always say, oh, there's 108 Upanishads because it's a sacred number, and you know, I think there's probably more than that, really. I mean, but there's a hell of a lot of them, and there's, there's but there's a number of principal ones, I believe. Um, you know, kind of like the most important, and there's also um, you mentioned your book, in fact, a couple of specific. I, I didn't realize this the Upanishads that you kind of recommended as talking specifically about yoga, and, and people don't really it probably you know really. It's a shame they don't, you know, spend enough time on Upanishads. I think generally get the Bhagavad Gita and the sutras rammed down your throat you know, on the, on your yoga CT, but you, you don't get so much stuff on Upanishads. So a very a proselytizer of, of going back to the Upanishads. And, and what would you recommend if people wanted to, you know, to have a little little wander through the Upanishadic garden, as it were? Well, the very first place that yoga is actually defined in some recognizable way, um, i.e. doing something to sort of bring this kind of mind-body system under some degree of control, is in the Kata Upanishad. Um, and that says, yoga is the restraint of the mind and the senses. So it's an internalization of awareness, um, which leads to a higher knowledge. Um, and that's very clearly explained, and it's explained in quite an entertaining way. It's a dialogue between you know, the embodiment of death <laughs> and a young boy who goes to death and asks, you know, what's the meaning of life? Your death, you should know. Um, and out of this, you know, it's, it's, it's still quite you know, opaque and esoteric, but there is an explanation, an analysis of the problem that you know, we get drawn out into the world through our sensory engagement with it. We try to gratify ourselves. Um, and this quest for satisfaction in the outside world leads to the problem of suffering because you know we can never get everything we want we get all sorts of things we didn't ask for um, and we're constantly you know led on this merry dance by senses you know lusting after <laughs> after you know satisfaction uh, by you know trying to get hold of things that we think will give us pleasure um, and the Kata Upanishad is saying well that's fine but you'll just be you know, constantly led astray if you're at the mercy of these things which will mean an endless cycle of birth <laughs> and the way out of that is to just you know, stop engaging with the outside world and instead engage with the inner world uh, and purify perception to the point that you understand who you really are and that actually cures the fear of death because there isn't <laughs> there isn't really ultimately anybody there it's just an idea uh, and once you see through this illusion there's nothing left to be afraid of so the Kata Upanishad is basically the foundation of you know, what is then turned into yoga philosophy a lot of what Patanjali teaches in the yoga sutras um, is basically an echo of the Kata Upanishad combined with a few other sources as well. Right, we'll come to that in a second. The other, the other Upanishad, you mentioned another one as well, I think. The Shveta Shvatara is also often talked about um, partly because it actually has a description of, you know, it's the only postural instruction <laughs> you'll find in early texts. Sit up straight, keep the three parts of the body upright, basically, you know, the torso, the, the neck and the head. Sit up straight. Certainly going to enable you to stay still um, and steady everything. And that's the process, really, of steadying the mind, steadying the sense. Um, and the Bhagavad Gita's description in the sixth chapter of meditation is, is basically you know, almost identical to what you find in the Shveta Shvatara Upanishad. So scholars are a bit divided as to which came first. Um, you but essentially they're saying off. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's so much copying and pasting goes on in, in yoga texts. Um, it's an endless, endless remix. It's like remixes of remixes throughout history. Um, very hard to find the original song. <laughs> that's the, that's no kind of one, no one had a copyright at the time. Shame. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If only Patanjali had a copyright, he would be a millionaire, wouldn't he? Or billionaire now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what about the, I mean, going back, sorry, I'm going to go back to the Vader again. Where do we find this stuff? I mean, you know, another question before we get onto the big one of you know, yoga and where it came from and more about that. Uh, where do we find the, uh, the the tripartite of Brahma, Shiva and Vishnu? We don't, I don't think we originally find it so much in the, in the, in the early Veda, do we? That it comes in later. No, and how, exactly. how does that transpire? Well, it's really with the emergence of devotional religion. And again, you see a, a very clear similarity between what's in the Bhagavad Gita and the Shveta Shvatara Upanishad, in which the deity is Shiva rather than Krishna, yeah, an avatar of Vishnu. Um, and uh, they're both basically explaining a very similar story that you know, God is present in the world. Um, actually, the world is made of God. It's a sort of energetic emanation from a single source out into everything else. And you can follow it back through everything in the world, through you know, things we observe in nature, through the body, ultimately, which is where you know, yoga practice eventually draws on it all, um, back into an understanding of our place in the bigger picture. Um, so that is about 2,000 years ago, this uh, you know, devotional religion starts to crop up in text. There's a lot of it in the 
Mahabharata as well more broadly. Um, and devotion to Vishnu, devotion to Shiva are the two main strands of that. And then in the tantric traditions that come after that, particular focus on you know, various manifestations of the goddess also. Um, but before that, going back to the early Vedas, uh, the deities are completely different. I mean, there are a couple of mentions of Vishnu um, and a form associated with Shiva, Rudra is his name, his sort of fierce manifestation of what later becomes the more benign. I mean, Shiva literally just means uh, auspicious, benevolent, yeah, kindly, <laughs> he'll, he who will help. Um, but Rudra means sort of you know, ferocious or howling. So he's a god of storms. And a lot of the Vedic deities are associated with either natural forces or power in some way. Um, and the, the yeah, most supreme of them all is Indra. Um, there's Indra, there's the god of fire, Agni, who is the mouth of all the other gods. There's uh, various uh, names for the solar deity. Um, there's Varuna, who's sort of, yeah, kind of, I guess, uh, instrument of justice, <laughs> who sort of, yeah. I guess in charge, therefore, of the idea of Dharma, although Dharma isn't really talked about quite so much in the early hymns. So there's all of these yeah, literally kind of other deities, really. They're not talked about so much in modern context. Um, and again, you know, people in India today talk about, you know, everything comes from the Vedas. But first of all, most of what we think of today as Hinduism or yoga isn't found there. Um, and a lot of what is there is no longer observed or practiced. So it's not to say there's no connection at all. Um, there are the seeds of most things to be found in those texts, but they undergo a lot of transformation <laughs> between three and a half thousand years ago and today. Yeah. Um, oh, there's many places I could go from here. Um, what, what about the, just a quick one on, um, you know, the idea of Hinduism? I mean, where do we get this term? Um, where did, I mean, where, and maybe a very cursory, I mean, if we're kind of doing a Yoga 101 here, a very cursory idea of, you know, who were the people, the, the air, maybe the Aryan debate. Do you speak a little bit about that? You know, just to round <laughs> off this little bit. <laughs> <laughs> making you well, work hard all, yeah. Yeah. Tre tre tread on all manner of landmines yeah it's a catch-all um, little, little roundup yeah absolutely I mean hin Hinduism uh, as a sort of yeah, category didn't really exist until British colonialists you know, tried to sort of quantify and um, identify the different religious groupings in India um, and they reached for this name um, because you know, it, it would be been associated with people who lived in that part of the world. Um, the name given to, to the country at that time was Hindustan. And so the, the Hindus were the inhabitants of that territory. But of course, they weren't all of the same religion. Um, they were clearly Muslims. Um, Buddhism had also been big there, although it had by and large vanished by now. Um, and there were even some Christians, uh, partly to do with other <laughs> previous colonial in incursions. Um, but uh, the British wanted to say, well, who are, who are the majority who aren't all those other things? Um, let's use this term Hinduism to classify that, that group of beliefs. But it's so diverse. And at that time, probably no, nobody would have used that label of themselves. But very quickly, um, it became adopted, um, proudly so, uh, to, to, to the extent that Hindi nationalism was born <laughs> you know, with the embrace of that title. So it's a bit like, you know, I guess, uh, homosexuals you know, reclaiming the word gay right. or something of that sort. <laughs> That's a good um, metaphor. Yeah. yeah so so, so Hinduism is, yeah, it yeah. becomes a label that everyone's happy yeah. to use. But originally, it was, it was from, I think, Persian, yeah. um, referring to people who lived east of the Indus River. So, yeah. You know, most people over there, they're, mm -hmm. they're, yeah. they're the Hindus. Um, but it doesn't really have you know, a unifying doctrine. It's, it's, it's actually a collection of different religions. And um, there are devotional religions oriented towards, as I've said, Shiva, Vishnu, and uh, you know, aspects of the goddess. Um, there are you know, all these systems of yoga um, are described in Hindu texts for the, for, for the most part. I mean, there are other teachings on yoga in other religions as well. But they're a very different way of looking at the world, um, not necessarily religious, um, although some you know, cross over with religious teachings. Um, then there's all of these other preceding traditions that get combined with, with these different approaches, what we might call folk religion. I suppose we don't really have a trace of where it comes from predating the Vedas. Um, but as you observe, there is a shift. I mean, the Vedas seem to be um, yeah, a snapshot of a particular moment in Indian history where uh, what appear to be new <laughs> ideas um, starting to be described uh, because they, uh, first of all, have a link to ideas we find elsewhere, particularly in Persia um, and perhaps even further back into Central Asia. 
Um, so the theory, which is pretty well substantiated by all sorts of things, um, DNA evidence, linguistic evidence, is that some people migrated into India at that time. They weren't you know, the original inhabitants. Um, and they had chariots and horses, <laughs> and they talked about you know, warfare in a certain way. The, the Vedic hymns are very similar to the earliest uh, Persian texts in their description of the nature of the ritual, the deities themselves, um, you know, and what goes on. So there's obviously some connection there. Uh, and you know, that is not sort of non-Indian. Um, the Vedas were composed in India and they have you know, a particular connection to the place that they are you know, associated with. Yeah, um, yeah. But they're not unique. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, and so Indians <laughs> have been trying to explain that sometimes in terms of everything having originated in India a lot earlier than you know, scholarship today would suggest and then spread west from there. Unfortunately, there isn't the same weight of evidence to support that worldview. I don't think we can say for certain that we can prove it's not true. We can't prove very much about the ancient past, but um, I do think we can say there's a substantial body of evidence that people migrated into India. They referred to themselves as Arya, uh, which means noble, um, and that's where we get this, this concept of the Aryans. Now, that's all been polluted in the Western mind by the fact that the Nazis borrowed all these ideas. Yes, to claim yeah, that yeah, yeah. They were the ultimate <laughs> Aryan master race. And there's, there's, no, there's no, no trace of that in early Hindu teachings. The Nazis have bastardized a lot of things, including the swastika, um, which you know, comes from the Sanskrit language. It just means you know, a symbol of goodness or auspiciousness. I mean, no, nobody these days thinks of it that way, unfortunately. Slightly ironic. But it's um, well, before yeah, we still get there on temples. In, yeah. <laughs> it's a more contentious ground. And the BGP after you. Um, I'm not going to get you into talking about the Brahma Samaj or anything like that currently today, but um, I'm just going to go back actually to, to our, our basic bedrock of trying to understand the sim simple terms of like, what does it mean to, to follow Shiva, to be a Shaivite, and what does it mean to uh, follow Vishnu? And, you know, and indeed, does anyone, does anyone follow Brahma, right? Um, is there any, you know, is there any Brahma followers? And I think before we start, maybe, you know, for, for our listenership, I think just it's a, it's a useful qualification you make in your book between Brahma and Brahman, you know, which actually I have to say, like, foiled me for a number of years where I did think that they were the same thing. But, um, you know, well, so I think actually, it's in Sanskrit, to... you, you, you can often see them, particularly in compounds written identically. And so okay. it can be, especially in texts like the Mahabharata, very difficult to differentiate between the reference to a deity <laughs> who is sort of associated with the creation of everything um, and the concept that we get in the Upanishads of Brahman, which is. The totality of the cosmos, really. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the idea of Brahma as a deity, or literally in Sanskrit, it should be pronounced Brahma. There's a long A at the end uh, with a line across the top when transliterated into English. Um, so they would be you know, enunciated differently. It'd be Brahma, the deity, and Brahman would be the word for the, the totality of everything. Um, and so the, the, the sound of it already indicates something other. Um, and one is uh, not really worshipped uh, in the way that you describe uh, Shiva and Vishnu as being. You'll find temples to Shiva and Vishnu all over India. Um, but, I mean, it's probably uh, also a lot of a lot of sites of worship of the goddess, although she doesn't have quite so many <laughs> you know, grand um, bits of architecture <laughs> constructed for her. Um, but then yeah, Brahma, you don't find Brahma temples <laughs> um, in, in, in the same way. Um, and I think this is partly because... Um, Brahma is a bit of a sort of late stage invention as a concept anyway. The original creator deity from the Vedas is Prajapati, um, who is the Lord of Beings, is what his name means. Um, and uh, in some ways, you know, he, he, he sacrifices himself to make the world exist. And so there's this association in the way that the act of creation sort of involves that. Um, I mean, Vishnu is traditionally uh, depicted reclining on the cosmic serpent. And to create the world, he sort of bursts an, uh, a lotus out of his navel, out of which comes Brahma, who brings the world into being. So he sort of sits outside of the cosmos, making it happen. Um, he's not present in it in the same way. Uh, whereas Vishnu in Sanskrit, that means all pervading. Um, and most of the philosophies of uh, you know, devotion to Shiva uh, are based on the fact that Shiva is all pervading as consciousness, particularly in the tantric descriptions of it. Um, so they're very much in the world, of the world. The world is made of them, <laughs> both Shiva and Vishnu, the whole sort of theology around uh, you know, their worship, and the goddess particularly also. Uh, Whereas Brahma, it's not; it's much more abstract in that sense. Whereas the concept of Brahman, 
is the link between all of these different religious traditions. That's the earliest expression of it in the Upanishads in a way that isn't necessarily what scholars would call theistic, associated with any god. Um, it's just the totality of, of everything. It's what we might call in New Age language, the universe. <laughs> and uh, these deities, they are also the universe. So they might be represented as the Parabrahman, the Supreme Brahman, that which is you know, beyond the beyond. Non-dual versions of, of philosophy, particularly Advaita Vedanta, will say, actually, it's the other way around. The Supreme Brahman has no form. Um, these deities, you know, sure, they are embodiments of the totality, but they're stepping stones to a higher realization. Whereas the, the more dualistic uh, devotional religions that say, you know, I am separate to God, I have to bow down before, <laughs> they will see it as uh, you know, actually the deity is the highest. And uh, that's the distinction. But the Brahman concept that it is just absolute, <laughs> total, supreme, uh, above and beyond. Um, that concept is, is, is sort of yeah, the, the glue mm. that binds it mm. all together. And do we find specific kind of qualities in those that take Shiva as their god and those that, you know, are invested in Vishnu? I mean, can we draw any lines and can we attach them at all to the, I would I want you to talk a little bit next on this little, this little gallop through history about the, uh, the Darshanas, you know, and, and the schools, the different schools of perspective uh, we find. I mean, you know, is there any way to link Shaivism and Vaishnavism with, uh, with certain perspectives of the Darshanas or you know, is that, is that um, too much? I don't, I, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, those Darshanas, these sort of philosophical schools, as it were, um, they can be a bit misleading in themselves. I mean, they're often portrayed as the six, the, the classical ones, um, but they were only really systematized, you know, under a thousand years ago. People say there were a couple hundred, like it was again, like a, like a more of a British invention in, in, in kind of like 18, 1900s. They go back further. Uh, there's, yeah, I mean, the 12th century, I think, is the earliest identification of these these particular schools as you know the orthodox six, and, and their orthodoxy being that they don't they don't challenge the Vedas in the same way that the Buddhists, for example, did. Said that the priests, you know, were, were corrupt and this ritual's pointless. <laughs> you just need to sit down and see through your illusions, which the Buddhas take. Um, so there are many other schools as well that don't get included in that list. Um, and there was a, a text written maybe 600 years or so ago, uh, the Sarva Darshana Sangra, it's called. So the collection of all, the compendium of all philosophies. And I think there's something like 14 or 16, I forget exactly in there. Um, and that includes some of the tantric religions that also get left out because they, they in a way contradict the Vedas by saying that they've got new higher revelations, which might come from Shiva, might come from the goddess, might come from Vishnu. Um, so they're all a bit different. And, and in that sense, um, almost, you know, there are new ways of seeing. Darshana comes from the verbal root uh, to see. Um, so there are ways of seeing the world. Um, and therefore, you know, every, every kind of religious school has its own way of seeing. In that sense, you know, they are closely correlated to particular deities. Um, but actually, in the sense that we know that yoga, Vedanta, Sankhya, and then the ones that we don't really look at so much in the yoga world, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, um, and uh, I forgot what I missed out now. Where would we go? Yoga song. Oh, the uh, Mimamsa, Mimamsa, the other aspect Mimamsa. of Vedanta, um, looking yeah. at the ritual. I perhaps confuse things too quickly there. I mean, let's go and go back to, I mean, can we draw any broad strokes between um, the, the worship of, of, of Shiva and Vishnu? I mean, if we look at, can, can we say that, that Vishnu is more bhakti based or more kind of um, devotionally oriented? Um, whereas Shaiva is more, I mean, of a, more of the yogic. You often see, you know, you don't see many Vaishnavite yoga practitioners. It's more when you when you look at the sadhus, wow. they're generally more following <laughs> versions of Shiva. I don't know, maybe not. Got a nice book here. Highly recommend if anyone wants to dive in. Called uh, Sadhus, Holy Men of India by uh, is a Dutch guy, Dolph Hartsoeker, and he was he's a, a photographer, um, but he's also you know, quite knowledgeable. Spent you know, a couple of decades hanging out with Sadhus, and there's lots of uh, photographs, and you can see from their various you know kind of head markings mm -hmm. that uh, there are plenty of, of Vaishnavas as well as Shaivas in there. Um, so I mean, here's an example. You might you know, if, you, if you see the the head markings there, you might recognize those on, on Krishnamacharya, yeah. yeah. who was yeah. himself yeah. a devotional Vaishnava. Um, mm. So Vaishnavism has had a very big influence on, on modern postural yoga practice. Krishnamacharya was a Vaishnava, BKS Iyengar also. Um, but Tubby Joyce, no. So there's a distinction there. Um, but I think, I think actually, you know, in terms of uh, 
whether or not they are you know, particularly associated with either yoga or devotion, it really depends on which flavor <laughs> because there are many, they don't, they, you know, they don't lend themselves to easy categorization. Um, it's often talked about as if, you know, there's, 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 there's one type of tantric philosophy. It's non-dual. It's all about Shiva. It's the cosmos is all sort of one energetic substance. But actually, the, the sort of mainstream and earliest sort of strand of tantric religion was quite dualistic. It was very similar to the philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita. Tamil Nadu, the, 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 the Shaivas of, of that part of the world, basically a bit like, you know, Hare Krishna is going around singing love songs to God, um, but to hmm. Shiva. Um, so there's a whole tradition of, of very similar things in both categories. Right. Um, I actually think they're just they're just two different ways of talking about something very similar. So we can't really find want. particular like a particular differences in approach there in in terms. Well, of, they are different, yeah. and you know right. they, they they have their own you know, qualities and flavors in the way that they present things. Um, but I don't think that they are of you know s- such a different order that. Uh, they couldn't be reconciled. You can actually find parallels of any particular quality that you might associate with one of them in the other. So it makes it hard to differentiate them in that way. And I think this is, you know, as, as, as most Hindus would, would probably describe it, and this goes back to the Rig Veda, there's a verse in there that says, you know, um, in reference to the particular early Vedic deities like uh, Indra and Agni, um, that uh, you shouldn't really see any of these as the totality in and of themselves. Behind them is this ultimate oneness. So they're just different portals back into the ultimate oneness. And I think for that reason in particular, nobody would ever try and suggest that they're sort of utterly distinct and completely different. Um, they, they just have a slightly different feel to them. Um, and there's a concept in, in Indian religion, Ishta Devata, the, the, the form of the divine that calls you really, <laughs> that uh, you're drawn to. Um, that uh, is, is your way into that bigger picture, um, and so there's always this uh, again ability to fold it all back into something you know, much more inclusive. Um, so even when there's apparent contradiction, it can be reconciled. But actually, a lot of the time there isn't contradiction. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, India is often very confusing in this way, um, and it's sometimes helpful to have that in a kind of overview to to, to realize why it's confusing, how things do fit together, um, and then at the same time, you know, we can't inhabit all perspectives at once to pick whichever one is of interest to us and go further with it but but you know not to think that's the only way of seeing i think is, is really the key mm. and um you, you mentioned a term earlier uh dualism i mean how how would that i mean you find i suppose you find dualism and non-dualism within both strands of shavism and, and vaishnavism um and uh so we can't make that dis- distinction either although i would still say surely that the the, the that Shaivism is would be more advaita inclined than than other and and Vaishnavism well, perhaps I mean, more more dualistic. But I don't want to take any kind of before you go down that route. Yes. Before you go down that route, and I'm not cutting off because I'm defending my point because I'm sure I'm, that's talking out my ass. But um, <laughs> um, what about this term then? I mean, because people throw this Dualism. around, and I think yeah, like, I think it is a little bit misunderstood. Can be has been heard um to be misunderstood and um you know i'd like to you know just clarify this for people because i think you know although it's a very simple term it it, it, it does confuse i mean it's used in different ways i suppose um the the context in which i was using it before was as a contrast to what you just uh, mentioned advaita advaita is sanskrit for not consisting of two things not two-ness non-duality um, so it's just the opposite of that, saying that there are two things. And in, in the context in which those words are used in Vedanta philosophy, uh, one, Advaita, is the idea that there's nothing but ultimately oneness. Anything else is an illusion. Um, so the, the whole project is to not get confused by the illusion and to see all things as one. Um, therefore, to see the Atman in everybody, <laughs> to see all things as, as you know, a manifestation of the totality. Um the opposite of that is to see there's always distinction. And the reason that creeps in is because of devotional religion. Um, it's, you know, the supreme mindset of the devotee. I'm not the same as the divine. Mm. All I can do is be in awe of the divine, bow mm. down, make offerings. Mm. Um, so actually, that's where the biggest distinction between the, the Vedas and the Upanishads creeps in right in the earliest Upanishad, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. It says that people who make offerings to gods thinking they're somehow different don't understand. The truth is, aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Anybody can know this um, by just abandoning this idea that there's anything separate. 
Um, so they they just pull the rug out from the whole principle of the Vedic ritual in, in that immediate statement. And non-dual religion is built out of that. It's basically saying yeah, there is no religion. There's just see, seeing clearly. Um, whereas the dualistic thing says, well, the seeing clearly is to understand that there is a difference. Mm, and mm. then there are other ways in which that difference is described. And in yoga philosophy, so Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is sort of classically defined as the, the system of philosophy known as yoga, although there are many other flavors of yoga to be found um, in Indian texts. Um, they have a different duality. They're based on the Sankhya philosophical system where um, there is pure consciousness, um, which is inactive. Um, it's just a sort of light of awareness shining. Um, and then there is the mind and the body and the world and sensory engagement between all those things, um, which comes from a, a different category. So there's a Purusha, the consciousness and the world, Prakriti, um, and they're separate. And the project of yoga is to understand their separateness. Um, you end up in the same place, really, to <laughs> philosophies of oneness in a state of pristine, you know, lacking illusions, pure consciousness. Um, but the way to get there is to separate two things in that system instead of to see them all as sort of part of the bigger picture. Um, mm. And we often see that confused in the modern yoga world because people will always say yoga means union mm. and it comes from Patanjali. And in Patanjali's text, it definitely doesn't, <laughs> doesn't talk about union. It says union is the problem that yoga will resolve by separating things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would like to come to that later, I think. I mean, and probably in a further talk, I hope. Um, well, first of all, I mean, let's contextualize potentially. I mean, where does he fit in the grand scope? I mean, is he drawing on past texts? How does he draw on those past texts? Um, and what are the offshoots of it? Um, and and you mentioned that, yes, I mean, there's certain things that he definitely does say and certain things he doesn't say, you know, I mean, and I think to clarify, to make that as a clear point, because I mean, these days, people are happy to decide that they potentially will say whatever they read into it, you know, which, you know, I mean, I, I actually, until uh, reading and, and interviewing, in fact, Philip Mass didn't realize that it's actually the, the, the Yoga Sutras is part of a bigger work with with a commentary, basically authored by probably none other than Bachanjali himself, saying exactly what he means when he says Brahmacharya or, you know, Aparigraha, you know, um, you know, but it's latterly, I mean, I think, you know, those terms are pretty – we can play fast and loose with those kind of things, you know. Um, Certainly Brahmacharya. Yeah. Nobody wants to be celibate. And, uh, no, <laughs> they, no one wants to do that. Yeah, let's call it constancy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or just sort of wise use of energy or some, some such – Yeah, uh, not yeah. having too much Blah, sex. blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just, just enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't, 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 don't abuse yourself or anyone else. Don't have so, sex so this is, don't enjoy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so this yeah, is this yeah. is a book I highly recommend to anyone yeah. who really wants to take a deep dive. Um, this is you know, probably the only really easily accessible English translation of the full commentary that accompanies Patanjali's Sutras by Swami uh, Hariharananda Aranya. Um, he was a Bengali, so it's translated again into English from from, from the original Sanskrit. But uh, that's a summary of, of what the Yoga Sutras actually mean on their own terms. And it will surprise people who've not engaged with that before. Uh, because what's happened is that people have started reading these pithy one-liners, 195 of them, add them all together, there's barely 1,200 words. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's not, not even a long newspaper article. Um, uh, and there's a huge amount of gaps in that information because there's hardly any verbs used it's a very pithy way of trying to summarize ideas um, and what we then attempted to do in the modern world is to read in our assumptions into all the gaps that are there because there you know, is a lot left unclear the commentary clarifies a lot of that um, on its own terms explaining what was going on over you know, the centuries between maybe 1,600 years or so ago that the, the Yoga Sutra was composed and now um, yeah, others have added to that, always commenting on the sutras and their commentary together as if they belong together, as if they're all one thing, as you say. The Yoga Shastra, a combination of a commentary and a sutra text. Um, and uh, yeah, it's only in the last 15, oh, sorry, 150 years that people have really looked at the sutras independently. And I think that started with Vivekananda. <laughs> he went to America at the end of the 19th century, gave, gave all these talks, um, very accessible, very, very, very modern sounding in some ways, um, but you know, basically just 
playing fast and loose with <laughs> what Patanjali says to advance his own yeah. interpretation of yoga philosophy. And everybody you know, since him feels free to do the same. <laughs> that guy has a lot to answer for, doesn't he? But I mean, what was the context that they were written in? Um, um, in terms wow, of people good, often good say question. that it was, a, yeah. Yeah, it was an argument against Buddhism, or you know, I mean, uh, now are they are they a clear? A clear uh, do they do they constitute a clear thread in Samkhya, or are they involving other uh, you know other aspects of of you know Buddhism or schools or etc.? Um, yeah. Well, the fullest title given to the text, um, which Philip Mars has, has really emphasised, um, is that it's the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, a text about yoga written by Patanjali, but it's also the Samkhya Pravachana an explanation of Sankhya philosophy. So it's very much rooted in that dualistic Sankhya worldview. Um, but apart from that, it's basically saying very much the same thing as the Buddha. So a lot of the fourth chapter of the book is basically then given over to saying, well, we're actually saying something different, despite having yeah. echoed a lot of what the Buddha had to say. So much the, Buddhist the, stuff. The, the theory, the theory yeah, yeah, of why yeah. we do what we're doing, the, the nature of what we do, and you know the way in which it works on the mind to remove suffering. All of that is very similar to the Buddha's message and potentially amidst that. Um, he says in the very first sutra, um, Atta Yoganushasanam, um, the Anu part of Yoganushasanam um, is referring back to previous teachings. It's basically, you know, further teachings. He's providing more teachings. Um, so he's acknowledging this is sort of an update on the previous knowledge. Um, and really, I think the best way of understanding the Yoga Sutra is um, in an ancient Wikipedia article. It's a bullet point summary of lots of stuff that's been known for the previous thousand years, <laughs> put together in play, you know, plain language that's yeah, pretty hard to interpret, but accompanied by a commentary that makes more sense of it. And a teacher would have had to interpret that. But what is it a knowledge of? It's a knowledge of meditation. Mm. Nothing to do with physical yoga practice whatsoever. Um, and the other aspect of it is that it's about world renunciation. Um, mm. So it's for people who choose you know, voluntarily to turn their back on the world, go and live in a cave, sit still. Uh, if you had to distill the teachings of the Yoga Sutra to a pithy phrase in itself, it would be sit down, shut up. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and I, want, I actually want to spend longer on the sutras in a later date with you, perhaps. So, but what about this idea and on a personal level? Where did this Ashtanga Yoga come from? Because relatively recently, I have to embarrassingly admit, I, I, I realised from articles of Jason Birch, etc., that, that Ashtanga wasn't made up by Patanjali, that there was this mention of uh, you know, uh, syncretized yoga, you know, with eight limbs or, or five or six limbs bef before Patanjali, right? Well, this whole focus on eight limbs, I think, is the thing that we would really need to unpack about the Yoga Sutra. That's not the message of the text. It's not its framework for practice. It's not It's not really anything other than a way of sort of you know, listing eight, eight aspects of what it is to see through your illusions and remove suffering. And the first half of the second chapter is much more informative for what Patanjali's philosophy is. The second half, which is where you get the first five of those limbs, um, yeah, not so much. Um, and yes, the, the phrase Ashtanga, um, eight limbs, literally eight parts, um, is used in association with all sorts of different things. In the Mahabharata, there's references to systems of philosophy, systems of medicine. In fact, um, Ashtanga is often you know, associated with you know, medical science, <laughs> the, the eight-part thing that will remove your, 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 you know, your woes, yeah. will heal I mean, you. I think, um, I think Jason so talks about it in the Ayurvedic yeah. term, uh, exactly, the, the yes. famous yeah, Ayurvedic yeah, yeah. text. Can't remember the name of it now. Acharika um, Samhita. Yes, that's the uh, one. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so there's this, there's this constant emphasis on a similar framework, um, and you know it comes perhaps you know, from the same place that the Buddha got his ideas. It's not to say that it's all ripped off from Buddhism, but you know, there's an earlier history of people stepping out of society, going to the forest trying to understand this problem of suffering. Um, and they have all come from this shared body of knowledge, uh, which was outside of the mainstream of the Vedic ritual, um, which has then come back into Vedic religion, is also there in Buddhist religion, it's there in the Jain religion, it spreads elsewhere. It's now become this sort of free-floating yoga discipline that anybody anywhere in the world can practice, which is just about understanding the nature of suffering and how to remove it. Um, and the Buddha's description of that was, you know, we, we have this tendency to suffer. We suffer because we want stuff. We don't always get what we want. The problem, therefore, is desire. Um, and this desire can be eradicated by an eightfold path. <laughs> and so the, the, the notion of removing suffering in eightfold paths are very closely connected. So Patanjali obviously felt that, you know, to show his system worked, having an eight-part summary of it would be quite handy. Um, like, but there like aren't really eight it. parts to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, his, his basic method it's is... Just a Focus. 
Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's, yeah. he's a summarizer, but he says that the tool that will liberate you is just focus your mind till it gets well, so subtle that you can see the difference between your mind and consciousness. Say, then no, you will be liberated. I think it's because he knew that no one really fancied that. He knew, like, oh, that's, you know, no one's going to take that. <laughs> so I give him the Ashtanga, you know, they'll get, you know, it's like, it's a, like a, they'll get involved in the Yamas, you know, and speculative about whether they're doing right or, you know, and they'll enjoy that. I'll give them that, you know. And, but and all, think, of those, all of those yeah. preconditions are just, are just, you know, the Yamas and the Yamas, they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're tools see, that will make it easier to sit still. That's I think the are. thing is, why, I mean, you know, the Ashtanga Yoga, I mean, as I say, I think we can almost draw it to close because I want to come back to this with you again in, a, in the next one. But I mean, the, the Ashtanga Yoga really is now talked in the same breath as, and, you know, at start and finish the Yoga Sutras, really. That's like the Yoga Sutras of Sanjali, is the Ashtanga Yoga, learn the limbs, and there you've got it. It's really, that's a small part of it, this category. And, and the small, the smallest part of it, you know, potentially is really talking about this, uh, the, the Yamas, you know, and, and yet, you know, to, to my frustration, I mean, this is the main discussion of the text is about these Yamas, you know. Um, whereas, I mean, really, I mean, potentially, um, you know, I mean, he was talking to the converted. I mean, he was talking to renunciates, lay people. I mean, you know, like, I think it was just, you know, like flying through the Yamas, really, because, it would uh, one would assume that they would already be doing the yamas right that this you know as you say that really i mean he's talking about one-pointed focus and yeah destruction of the of the mind as we know it you know he's not really talking about how to how to live a, a good life in in, the, in society because they're, they're not living in society exactly yeah and um there's even a question as to whether this was ever used as a teaching text or whether as i say it's this kind of you know, encyclopedia entry that summarizes what yogis get up to not even clear that patanjali himself was a yogi i mean he certainly hadn't reached kaivalya because he's still sitting there talking in the world and writing a text um so uh there's, there's, there's also, I think, this other question that we have to engage with. The reason that we're so obsessed in the modern yoga world with eight limbs is that one of them is asana. Um, so it provides this ancient justification for the idea that do your you know, regular postural practice uh, will somehow have you on the road to liberation. I mean, it can perhaps, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with being liberated. It can get you much more entangled in suffering very easily. It can get you much more ego invested, much more fixated on results, all sorts of things. So um, potentially it's talking about an analysis of why we suffer. And you can you know, combine that with postural practice 100%, but then you need to read the first half of the second chapter that talks about why we suffer, not the second half that lists eight things that aren't really separately eight things anyway, and certainly have nothing to do with making shapes because Patanjali's asana um, is clarified in the commentary as sitting still. Yeah, I mean, and I can't res um, I can't resist to wrap it up with a like, let's, let's, <laughs> uh, let, you know another little kind of like <laughs> very embarrassingly quick uh, sequester through through the concepts of yoga. I mean, so Patanjali's yoga is basically as a as a precursor for meditation right as a seat as a seat or a, a a foundation for stilling the mind right that's the use of asana right a steady and a comfortable position for meditation is that is that correct yes although yeah. it's not really even i mean potentially yoga is stilling the mind that's all there is there is no there is no so, you know yeah. calisthenic stretching there's right. none of it there's none really? of it at all right. <laughs> that's what the has what the hatha yoga text in no text talks about anything other than sitting or beating your body up by you know, holding the arm above the head for the rest of your life until about a thousand years ago a thousand years ago you start to get non-seated postures the earliest being mayurasana um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's completely different concept and it just has nothing to do with modern postural yoga in that sense. It does have you know, a lot to do with trying not to suffer, but <laughs> it's a different yeah, I certainly want to get, to get more involved with this, uh, concept with you later, but I mean, where do we first find the, the term yoga, um, used as a methodology then? I think, I, th I believe the Vedas do talk about it, but I think they talk about it in, as a, a form of sorcery or something like that, uh, you know, a kind of mind well, control. Well, the earliest, um, the earliest Vedic use of yoga, um, is, is a, a synonym for war. Um, oh, really? Yoga does mean joining things together, connecting them is one of its meanings. The other meaning is concentration, which is what it means in most early texts like Patanjali's. Um, in the Vedas, it means joining your chariot to an animal to go into battle. Um, so there are hymns that ask the gods for you know, favor in war, and the word used there is in yoga. Um, so yeah, we want your blessings through our yoga of hitching up the wagons to go out there. Oh, yeah, okay, so that's where David Gordon White gets that kind of idea of rigging. You, you heard that? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly okay. where that comes from. Right, right. 
So the, the earliest texts are right. so, so right. the Kata yeah. Upanishad. That's the first place where we hear about yoga as a you know, term associated with inward focus, stilling the mind and the senses, um, disengaging from the outside world. And it's not until you know, the medieval era that we start to hear about you know, perhaps cultivating the body, um, being in the world, perhaps even being liberated in the body. Instead, of, before that, it's all about leaving the world behind and nobody today so really if we seems draw to touch a, broad, a broad, broad strokes again, can we say, first and foremost, yoga is used as an aesthetic practice of withdrawal um, when it's referred yes, to. Initially, um, yes, initially. Um, you know, withdrawal to transcend. And latterly, in the medieval age, we start to find creeping in from one place or another this idea that we might use yoga alchemically more, more, you know, not exactly in the fashion we're currently doing, or maybe I'm sure some people believe they are. Um, you know, but, you know, the idea that you can... Just have a read of the Hatha and we'll see that we're not really... <laughs> yeah, well, you know. But yeah, you, you're just going to the idea that you're using the body for for some energetic transformation, right? So, I mean, would those be correct as two two rough rough streams to draw through the the, the term? Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I think really physical yoga practice as we know it today is a relatively recent invention. We have to acknowledge that there aren't sequences of postures taught to groups in classes. Uh, people who live in the world <laughs> uh, until the early 20th century is the earliest evidence we have of that. But going back a thousand years before that, there are, as you say, you know, physical techniques, moving energy, um, transforming the body, not trying to destroy the body or leave it behind. Um, and then all of the 1500 years plus before that are about leaving the world behind. So those are the sort of three broad phases. There's modern yoga, then there's medieval yoga, and then there's ancient yoga. Um, and they've all got slightly different objectives. Originally, it was, you know, get, get out, get off the wheel of suffering. Anything will do. This is such a serious problem. Basically, give up on life. And Patanjali is a summary of all of that. The medieval Hatha yoga texts are a summary of the next phase, which is, you know, as you say, body is an alchemical crucible. It can bring about stillness. It can bring about you know, um, clarity of vision, removing these illusions um, through harnessing you know, this capacity to do. Um, so doing is no longer an enemy. But in the modern era, it's about you know, being embodied and enjoying it, <laughs> enjoying life in the world. Uh, and that's completely different. <laughs> it's a rather different cake, isn't it? It's like kind of baking. It's yeah. like you've baked these kind of cakes and they're kind of similar. And then it's like the icing is just like completely different. Like, you know, your modern posture yoga being this kind of like, oh, we've kind of got these cakes and it's like, you know, it's like a you know, peanut butter and chocolate. And now it's like, we're going to put on like, you know, like, Raw avocado icing or something, just like completely like well, it's a relatively reasonable method. And I think the reason the, the raw yeah, avocado, avocado. Very, but um, and the point though is like, a little it's smear not, on the top, this, which is just kind of. <laughs> Well, that doesn't make I mean, it bad, Adam. You know, we, 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 I mean, you, you, and I, and plenty of others. We come, we come to, we come no, to no, no, no. We're kind of making helps. making fun of it, but it's it's yeah, absolutely yeah. And, and I do want to go back but to that later. It's got uh, a different but, philosophical um, framework, and that's what we yes, really need to yeah, acknowledge. Yeah, attempts exactly. attempts um, to try and rationalise what we do today through the prism of Patanjali just end up misleading us. I think yeah, problem. yeah. And unless and unless we're talking about meditation, yeah. The thing is, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing, and you know, and you, I know from your. Great, uh, great little uh, articles on your your study with a yenga, which I find very amusing uh, on your website. <laughs> if you read them, they're funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, me for many years have done this yoga and I believe in it, you know, and enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. But it isn't the same thing, and I think you know, it's worth like anything knowing your roots, and, and it makes it more interesting, and it makes one also reflect upon one's own aims, you know, and and then methods That's the key That's methods it. within yes, those exactly. aims, you know, so once you've got an aim, then you might also amend your method slightly or qualify uh, your attitude towards something, you know, with a maybe a potentially rounder and broader view of your objective um let's just finish you summed up, it up really well there adam just just to finish it what i'd like to say this is as one kind of contribution that builds on that is that you know the connecting thread therefore is inquiry um, if we're asking honest searching questions <laughs> that is consistent with the earliest Upanishads. that's that's what they were doing um so not believing our own stories you know oh yeah yoga comes from the vedas you know it's all been the same for thousands of years etc cetera, etc cetera. but to actually ask ourselves take responsibility for our own practice why do i do what i do what am i trying to achieve with it and then Answer, uh, answering that with a vague inclination to look back into the past and see are there any other threads like you know internalization of awareness um, you know working with the breath all these things that do have you know a thread going back into the past and again that's why i wrote my book to try and yeah, illustrate how lots of these building blocks are ancient but the, the thing that's been made out of them today is a brand new construction so we're all going to make our own construction 
but you know, it helps to see what you know in that might still at the same time take us back in in, in time without pretending that it's all in the yoga sutra mm. I suppose it's seeing the contradictions and, and seeing the possible difficulties and discrepancies in it is, in the end, traditional yoga. <laughs> you know, differentiation. Discerning, discerning one thing from another. Give, give or to a, a few, a few dodgy methods over the centuries, um, and our current more sanitized approaches. Perhaps you know, I mean, the, the many of the approaches we've discussed, and especially with Jim on my interview with him and Jim, James Mallison, uh, you might not do in a current yoga class. Um, <laughs> <Indeed>. Yeah. <laughs> A bit more private. Um, <laughs> I'll leave it there. But um, I mean, just um, you know, to finish, um, that, uh, Daniel, what about this term Hatha Yoga? Then I mean, you know, um, James uh, actually also described it well, and I think you you maybe use his term as well in this idea of something. Which uh, when we talk about Hatha, we're talking about something because it, it involves many, again, many, many different possibilities and techniques, and you know, um, you know, how do we find a thread through it? You know, what what is it that denotes something as Hatha apart from the the, the vaguely gentle and, uh, and more uh, uh, relaxing auntie of uh, you know of Vinyasa or Ashtanga, right? In, in the current you know, yoga, well, in the yoga modern world, that's the Well, of course, yeah, it's Hatha yeah. yoga. You're, <laughs> it's fine. It's not dangerous, and you won't injure yourself. But I mean, <laughs> that doesn't mean the literal you know, meaning. Not, of- it doesn't the mean that at all in the literal meaning exactly yeah, so, yeah it, means, it means force and violence yeah. so it's, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's almost the opposite but these texts that teach it um, you know, from about uh, ooh, 900 years or so ago onwards um, they emphasize that they're trying to do something forceful with the body um, trying to have powerful effects through you know heating up you know, basically uh, energies through particularly breath control um, so as to blow your own mind. <laughs> so you're heating up the alchemical crucible of, of the torso by locking it at the top and the bottom, um, turning the breaths around on each other until they explode upwards. Um, so it's using the body to still the mind. So it's, it's basically a, a broad catch-all term for forms of yoga practice. It's like a compound. You achieve the state of yoga through this forceful engagement with the body by making it do things that aren't natural to it. So sealing it, holding the breath, turning things around, moving things upwards. Um, and that's that's the sort of basic you know, framework within which it all operates. But obviously, over time, there are texts that teach all sorts of techniques that contribute to that. And you know, increasingly complex and uh, you know, different different contortions um, that uh, we recognize today in advanced asana practice yeah, come into the picture. But they were never the sole tool. They're the preparation for working with subtle energy in the body. That's Hatha Yoga. It's this manipulation of particularly the breath, but also um, sexual essences, um, you know, energetic uh, representations of deities. That's where the chakra system creeps in and everything else, uh, Kundalini. Um, but all, all, of, all of that is under this broad heading of you know, using the body to go beyond the body. Um, so it's still going beyond the body, but it's you know, the body is a tool. We need to cultivate it. We don't need to destroy it. <laughs> we need to, need to look after it it so that it can help so in the end you do actually have to practice these forceful techniques carefully um so there's a phrase shanaih shanaih that crops up in, in texts which basically means step by step little by little carefully gradually um, so effectively gentle yoga is actually the essence of the patta um, despite the fact that it does mean forceful and also i mean you use the term in your book as well i, I quite really like it the idea of stubbornness or um you know as james madison jim says uh bloody mindedness you know it's a very english exactly yeah, 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 english yeah, yeah. doing something yeah doing word. something in kind of stubbornness is is uh is happy. and i kind of like that idea in terms of practice like when you don't feel like it when you kind of you know you're in bed and you just think oh lie and that's another hour or get up and have a coffee and a croissant you just think no you know i'm gonna you know that, that sense of you know that, that that kind of resonates right in terms of what we're doing currently there's a certain stubbornness about it. No, I don't want to do it. Of course, you know, get up every day and think, oh, asana, yes, please. Like, you know, but, you know, you do something, you know, and it's almost just the stubbornness of doing that thing that you kind of don't necessarily want to do, you know, for a higher purpose or, or, or for your highest purpose that I think unites, you know, us to that, to that earlier, to the earliest iterations of of this thing you know? although i mean this is evolving today and you know i've seen you talking about this in, 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 in recent months um that a lot of these ancient you know, systems of discipline that we were told about that didn't really go back much further than 100 years anyway um you know aren't necessarily all that helpful they can be quite rigid they can be quite dogmatic um and perhaps subjecting oneself to it day in day out isn't ultimately that helpful after 20 years <laughs> that's a little bit of variety is good and perhaps a little bit of softness and 
understanding this delicate balance between you know what potentially again he's got some useful tools in his yoga sutra you know, categorizing as the balance of um vairagya detachment letting go with apyasa making an effort um so yeah putting put putting some you know stubbornness into it while at the same time still remaining subtle enough to know when you know we're pushing too hard and not just you know, whipping ourselves over the back in the desperate hope it's going to save us from something but instead recognizing actually today is the day to stay in bed and to have two croissants <laughs> Well, you've qualified. You've taken my point now. That's a good point to turn around my my, my general tone on on myself. Um, but um, so we'll end it there. Um, but um, it's been a fantastic little uh, run through, and I hope you'll join me again, Daniel, for for another one. Um, because, um, we oh, haven't really you. even yeah, got into a, two ideas of Sam, <laughs> Samkhya, which I wanted to. The next part is a, a little a little one hundred and one through through ideas of Samkhya yoga and what that means and the gunas I was planning with you, and maybe even ah, yeah, maybe even a little bit of Bhagavad Gita. So um, I hope hope the listeners will uh, will stay tuned and enjoy another episode when uh, when Daniel agrees to come back with me again. So uh, thanks again, Daniel. If you haven't got the book, get the book. The truth of yoga, as you see, is very very clearly explains things in a much uh, more simple uh, or the simplest terms you possibly can given the subject which is contradictory paradoxical and a bloody mess really <laughs> so thank you so much daniel for coming on well you're welcome and thank you very much for inviting me and if, if i may just just uh, invite people to check out my website truthofyoga.com there are some courses on there that go into much more depth on each of these texts if you want to dive deeper yeah we'll put that in the uh, notes thanks okay well thank Cheers. you again thank you thank you <laughs> <Take it> easy <laughs>